Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Michael Cunningham and Jacqueline Cooper. Hello. Hi, everybody. So today we're talking about epistolary books, one of the prompts on the Books and Bites bingo reading challenge. And I guess we should start by defining what we mean by epistolary. So my understanding is epistolary is a novel that's written written in forms of letters, but I believe over the years it has come to also mean like transcripts, emails, interviews, interviews, instant messages even. Message, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Diaries. Diaries, mm-hmm. yes. I also read one book, or I listened to it on audio, that had a a lot of post-it notes. (laughs) It was called The Flat Share, and it was a romance. And these two people were sharing a flat with sharing the same bed, but... He, like, he was on night shift and she was on day shift, so they weren't ever there at the same time. So they their romance evolved through their post-it notes to each other. Interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, it was cute. Yeah. I do yeah. recommend that one if, you, if you're looking for something kind of light, light for this prompt. Mm. But yeah, it can, it can be a lot of different things. It's a big fancy word for... An array of options. Yeah. And of course, we've, we've got some different options for you today. And we'll have some lists posted on our website. And you can always stop by the Ask a Librarian desk if you, if you need a little more help finding something. So my book for this month is To the Bright Edge of the World by Eowyn Ivey. To the Bright Edge of the World is an epistolary novel that combines some of my favorite things, historical fiction, adventure, nature, romance, and a touch of magic. In 1885, U.S. Army Colonel Alan Forster leads an expedition up the fictional Wolverine River in the Alaska Territory, leaving his pregnant wife Sophie behind in the Vancouver barracks. The book is written primarily in the form of Sophie's and Alan's diaries and letters. Alan and his party travel through an extremely remote area of treacherous landscape, trying to make it up the frozen river before it thaws. The weather is harsh, and once their food stores run out, they have little way of replenishing them. Often, indigenous people save the group from starvation, despite the terrors their tribes experienced at the hands of earlier Russian explorers. At times, Alan and his team encounter indigenous people who appear to have supernatural connections with animals and plants. There's an old man who turns into a raven, women who are descended from geese, a baby who is birthed from tree roots. Are these incidents myth or reality? Or, as some white people later suggest, are they hallucinations, quote, brought on by starvation and exposure to the elements? 
While the Alaska expedition is certainly suspenseful and dangerous, the author doesn't treat Alan's story as more important than Sophie's. In fact, Sophie experiences danger herself, that of a risky pregnancy in a remote army outpost with few friends and no family to help her. And like Alan, she's an adventurer at heart. A former school teacher, she is unsatisfied with the gender expectations that say housework, children, and parties are the only socially acceptable roles for women. Her intense loneliness spurs her to explore two of her interests, ornithology and the new technology of photography. She begins photographing birds and their nests in the wild. Alaska's remoteness means that Sophie and Alan go months without knowing what is happening to each other. The epistolary format allows the reader to experience those gaps, to understand a little of what it must have been like to wonder whether your partner is alive or dead, or whether your child has been born. The inclusion of other archival material, such as photographs, objects, and official military reports, makes the story come alive. Letters between Alan's descendant, Walter Forrester, an elderly man who donates the archive to an Alaska museum, and Joshua Sloan, the museum's director, connect to the story to contemporary life. Although it took me a little while to get into this novel, overall I found it well-paced and wanted to keep reading. The writing is engaging and lyrical, and it has a strong sense of place. In addition to being an excellent choice for Books and Bites Bingo, this book would also make a great book club read. As in other frontier adventure stories I've read, you won't envy what little food Alan and his team managed to cobble together. Let's just say that they are hungry enough to think that eating moldy dried salmon is a good option. Mm. <laughs> oh, that sounds awful. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a bad idea. <laughs> Their diet is so poor, they get scurvy, a severe vitamin C deficiency. If only they'd had citrus herb and tonic. <laughs> this recipe from the New York Times calls for two limes, one orange, and one lemon to be sliced and simmered with water, turmeric, and lemongrass. After five minutes, you take it off the heat and let it steep with sliced ginger and fresh oregano to make a tea concentrate that will keep in the refrigerator for a couple of weeks. You can drink it warm with more water and honey, but I've found it's also good served cold with sparkling water or tonic. And maybe a little gin thrown in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll link to the recipe on our blog. That sounds refreshing. Yeah, it's really good. And I've made it, you know, different ways. Like, didn't have lemongrass. So I left that out and added some thyme. And I usually don't put two limes in it because that seems like it would be too limey to me. So I usually <laughs> just put one lime. And mm -hmm. like I said, you can you can do a lot of different things with it. And keeps away the scurvy. Oh, that's, yeah. That's <laughs> I bet it goes nice with some moldy fish. <laughs> <laughs> I have not tried it with that. <laughs> That's funny. In my book, they're having to reuse their water over and over because they're aboard a spaceship. So, Oh, yeah. I think they probably would like to have some refreshing <laughs> drinks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
The book I chose for the epistolary prompt is the science fiction novel Illuminae by Amy Kaufman and Jay Kristoff. This is book one of the Illuminae Files trilogy. The story is an account of a stellar corp war in the year 2575 between two competing companies and the military. The war begins with the destruction of Carenza IV. Carenza IV is a small planet at the edge of the universe. One of the companies, the WUC, has an illegal mining operation that has been in place for over 20 years. So many families live on the small planet. The mega corporation Biotech discovers the, comp- the competitor company, the WC's mining operation on Carenza. Biotech decides to attack the Carenza colony using warships. The survivors decide the story of the destruction must be recorded so Biotech does not get away with murdering innocent civilians and their families. The story is told from the point of view of the survivors, military personnel, the ship's computer, through hacked documents, including emails, schematics, military files, instant messages, medical reports, and interviews. Among the inhabitants of Carenza are high school students Katie Grant and Ezra Mason. They have been dating for over a year. However, the couple have just broken up when they are attacked by the Baytech missiles. Katie is thinking of ways to get back at her ex when the Defiant, the planet's WUC protection ship, sounds the spaceport alarms to warn everyone that calling is being attacked by warships. Luckily that day, Katie drove to school instead of taking the planet's underground transportation system to avoid her ex-boyfriend Ezra. Coincidentally, Ezra decides he doesn't want to be in the tube during attack. He sees Katie, and because she isn't mad enough to let him die, they flee to the transport spaceport together when the warships are attacking. Ezra is shot during the escape to the spaceport shuttles. Due to his injuries, he and Katie are being evacuated onto different spaceships. Ezra is aboard the United Terran Authority government warship, the Alexandra, with other wounded, and Katie ends up on the civilian science ship, the Hypatia. Other colonists escape to the Corpatius. Although Ezra and Katie, with other colonists, escape the biotech attack, it turns out there's a lot more danger on the way. Biotech has also exposed some of the colonists aboard one of the ships to a highly contagious and deadly plague, which turns people into murderers. Biotech's warships are still in pursuit and due to some of the damages of the Alexandra and the Hypatia and the other ships, they will not be able to outrun them for long. Alexander also suffers damage to his artificial intelligence, Aiden. Aiden, who should be protecting them, may even be a bigger threat to, than the biotech corporation. Nobody in charge will say what's really going on. Katie, a computer hack data whiz, is hacking the system to get to the truth. Meanwhile, Ezra is inducted into the military as a fighter pilot. Will Ezra be killed in the war, or can he help Katie discover how to save everyone? This novel has something for everyone. A horrifying plague, a war with fighter pilots, everyday heroes, and a romance. My favorite part was the relationship between the characters. I think the way the novel is written, it gives it an air of authenticity. I will warn readers that there are violent and gruesome scenes. Also, I found myself cringing at some of the more suggestive remarks between the male characters. Due to all the horror and the provocative references, I would recommend this book 
be read by only mature readers. I paired my book with a recipe for a vegan galaxy cake from The Vegan Dollhouse. I have read one of Christoph's books before. I think the the Nevernight, the first one, the Nevernight series, I want to say, or the Nevernight Chronicles. Oh, okay. Whew. And you're not, you're not lying. Those are brutal and bloody, and some of the scenes were very, very explicit. Yeah, they were. I, I was uh, like, yeah. whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and is, is the book meant for teens? Is it a YA novel? It is a YA. It's in the YA section. I would say high school, though, uh-huh. definitely, just because the – Well, I don't want to give too much away, but the plague turns the people into, like, monsters, killing monsters, and they're, like, chasing, trying to kill everyone. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. All up in outer space and stuff. That sounds like my type of book. There's some, yeah, it's pretty, there's some horrifying, like, at one point they find all these bodies and there's all the skin's been torn off their bodies. And just, yeah. Pretty brutal, so that's why the gave the warning and i think i missed the part where you talked about the format it's written yeah it's written through instant messages and transcripts medical reports and emails so katie and ezra do communicate through emails since they're aboard different ships Mm -hmm. so interesting yeah i love how you can kind of play there's a lot of creativity you can do in the pistolary Mm-hmm. It really, it, I think it really lends itself to this because like, you're also getting like the AIs telling you mm-hmm. his report. Mm-hmm. And so that comes in a report format. And so you have all these different formats, but it all works with this. Yeah. It's just the way it's interwoven into the story. Yeah, I think the book I read had a lot of different elements like that, too. And like I kind of mentioned, I think... I think it kind of creates a little more suspense because you're not getting a straightforward mm-hmm. narrative. You know, you're getting, there's like gaps in between what happens. Yeah, and you have to piece it together. Yep. And, yeah. And that's, mm-hmm. and like one of the guys when he, well, maybe, so one of the people like is running from the, the, they call him the afflicted. He's running from them and, you know, it's he's just like horrified. He's telling the story of what he's trying to do in one of like I guess he mentally talks to the computer and it oh, wow. records it. So, mm-hmm. but it's cool. I think you might. It has something for everyone, Michael. I'm saying they've got the horror for you. <laughs> got some Play romance. <laughs> got I some horror. Get through the, the romance. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'll have to check that one out. Yeah. My book for the epistolary prompt is episode 13 by Craig DeLouis. I first found this book on Goodreads and knew immediately I was destined to read it for this prompt since it's a haunted house story. It involves ghost hunters and it's written in a epistolary slash found footage style. In this case, it's told in transcripts of raw video footage, web pages, journal entries, emails, and text messages. This book compiles these documents in an attempt to piece together what happened to the cast and crew of the paranormal investigation show, Fade to Black. They were filming the 13th episode of their first season at the infamously haunted Paranormal Research Foundation House, an old rambling derelict house in the secluded Virginian countryside that slated for demolition. Back in the 70s, a group of brilliant scientists set up shop in this house to conduct paranormal experiments on volunteers 
to unlock any latent special abilities, almost like a hippie versions of the CIA's MK Ultra project. That is until they all disappeared, scientists and volunteers alike. Now, almost 40 years later, Fade to Black has been granted special permission to be the first group to investigate the country's most notorious haunted house that hasn't been touched since the day the scientists and volunteers disappeared. Led by Matt, a true believer who wants to know what happens after we die, and his wife Claire, the skeptic and debunker of the crew who has a PhD in physics. They're very much like a Motor and Scully from the X-Files. They're joined by Kevin, a former Philly cop who is a devout believer in ghosts after a run-in with a demon while on duty. Jake, the Viking chic professional cameraman who's just here to shoot the footage. And Jessica, a single mom actress added by the production company to round out the team and looking for her big break. The first night, they get absolutely nothing and are getting a bit frustrated. The show's ratings are starting to dip, and this episode is essentially make or break if the show is going to make it to a second season. Then they catch the holy grail of paranormal activity on film. As they continue their investigation, something keeps toying with them. As they dig into the old files left behind by the scientist, it leads them to the, to the old well in the basement where the Paranormal Research Foundation conducted some of their experiments. And once they descend into the well, they start to find impossible things. Things that make them question reality. It seems like it would be difficult a difficult task to create fleshed out and compelling characters in a pistolary found footage book, but DeLuey managed to do it quite effortlessly. When the spares do show up, they don't disappoint with some truly intense and scary scenes. Also, this book flips the script on you, starting out as one thing, ghost hunters and over their heads in a haunted house, but becomes something else entirely, with a psychological confrontation for each character of their own insecurities and past traumas. Being a ghost hunter myself and an average consumer of paranormal television, I can say he did his research and knew the terms and jargon used in that community. If you're a fan of ghost hunting shows, found footage horror films, or haunted house stories in general, I would highly recommend this book. If you're a fan of horror films like I am, this book gave me strong vibes of the found footage classic Grave Encounters and the 1999 remake of House on Haunted Hill. So for my pairing, one evening before investigating... Jessica makes a pot of her mac and cheese for everyone. This recipe I found at dinneratthezoo.com is pretty close to the one she makes and calls for many of the same ingredients, like bacon, cheddar cheese, and elbow macaroni, and even her secret ingredient, paprika. It's pretty easy to make. It would make a great side dish and is even hearty enough for a main course. Sounds like something you would want to eat after <laughs> or while reading that book. <laughs> Comfort oh, food. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like that one also kind of uses those that format to build suspense. And yeah. Mm-hmm. The journal entries they most of it works. The journal entries I found maybe didn't work quite so much or maybe not quite believable cuz I don't there's some scenes I guess where characters are writing in a journal in a dark alley or dark tunnel while something pursuing them which just I don't find Hey, I better stop and document. Yeah. <laughs> uh, write down what's going on in the in the you know in the absolute darkness. So, uh, so there's a little, but like overall, I think it did a it did a good job. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, building suspense with that. And and I know from the list that we made together, epistolary books, that some classic horror is also written in epistolary format. Yeah, Dracula is probably the most famous. Mm-hmm. Written in letters from Harker, and I think 
is Frankenstein? Did I put Frankenstein on that list? I thought I saw Carrie. Carrie, is, yes. Carrie mm. is, is considered epistolary. I didn't know that before. Yeah, uh, well, mm. I you know, I haven't I haven't read that one. <laughs> Cuts a little close. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I read it a long time ago, so I don't like years ago, but that's one of his I haven't read. Oh, really? You yeah, haven't read I it have either? Not read, I've seen the movie. I've yet to read the book. I took a class where I read quite a, we read a, quite a few Stephen King books. Really? So, yeah, they were, the teacher was really into Stephen Uh-oh. King, so. I was like, So I also just wanted to mention, because we did put on the prompt epistolary book, so it can be a nonfiction book as well. And I have a, just a couple short recommendations. One is, that is one that I've talked about before on the podcast, but it's been a long time. It's called Dear Fahrenheit 451, Love and Heartbreak in the Stacks, A Librarian's Love Letters and Breakup Notes to the Books in Her Life. <laughs> but it's a very long title by Annie Spence. And the book collects letters that the librarian author wrote to different books. So it's not just to her favorite books, but also books that she doesn't like, books that annoy Mm -hmm. her, books that just don't belong in her library's collection anymore. I liked it because you can really see the full gamut of her relationship with books and I think most book lovers will appreciate that because mm. you don't love every book. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so you get to kind of, you know, see the good and the bad. Also, she's funny and a little snarky, both about books and about library patrons. <laughs> not that we ever are. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> but that's okay because it comes from a place of love. And I laughed out loud on multiple occasions while listening to the book. I, I listened to it on audio. And I will just say that Spence does her fair share of cursing, which is maybe not the typical <laughs> librarian stereotype. So if that's not your thing, you may want to keep that in mind. And then the other thing is I love reading letters, collections of letters between people. You know, once upon a time, that's how people communicated (laughs) in like long letters, not just, you know, little texts or quick emails. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So some of my favorites, I enjoyed, as always, Julia, the letters of Julia Child and Avis Devoto. Avis Devoto was her editor. So if you've been watching the the Julia series on HBO, you might be interested in that. Meanwhile, there are letters, the correspondence of Eudora Welty and Ross MacDonald. Eudora Welty, of course, the, the famous Southern writer, and Ross MacDonald was also a famous mystery writer. And they were friends, and Eudora Welty mm-hmm. read was a huge mystery fan and she I think they became friends because she sent him a fan letter or something you know wow. Wow. <laughs> so they had this like a years-long correspondence 
And then I also really liked My Dearest Friend, Letters of Abigail and John Adams. And that's a great one because you get to, you know, hear a woman's point of view from from that time period of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said earlier, we have even more options on our Books and Bites webpage or on our display, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We will. We, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. By the time this airs, <laughs> there will be a display. Yeah. <laughs> the librarian one you mentioned would also be a good one for books about books. Yes. For that it prompt would. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. To learn more about Books and Bites Bingo, visit us at justpublib.org forward slash books hyphen bites. Our theme music is The Breakers from the album In Close Quarters with the Enemy by Scott Whitten. You can learn more about Scott and his music at his website, adoreforadesk.com.